talking crime, cases, and backing the blue. Now, here are your hosts, Captain Ed Mamet and Detective Kevin Schroeder. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cop Talk. I'm Kevin Schroeder, and I'm here with my co-host, Captain Ed Mamet. Hello, everybody. Great to be on the show again today with our distinguished guest, who Kevin will introduce shortly. So our guest today on Cop Talk is retired detective Michael O'Keefe. Michael is a retired first grade detective. For 24 years, he worked in New York's meanest streets investigating murders and other violent crimes. He's now a professional writer. His first novel, Shot to Pieces, was published in 2016. It's part of a series about fictional detective Patty Durr. The latest Patty Durr story is Burnt to a Crisp, which came out in 2021. And I believe all, these, all his books you can get on Amazon. Michael, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's nice so to Mike, sit down with you guys. Great to have you as well. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, your background with the police department? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm a city kid, born and raised in New York. I uh, was born in uh, Queens, on the Queens-Brooklyn border. Spent, uh, misspent my youth. Uh, <laughs> uh, straddling that line between Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, I'm I went to St. Francis Prep, the high school, um, uh, where I really tipped to uh, creative writing. Uh, it's a very creative environment, St. Francis. And I got to credit them with that. They gave, uh, gave us an ample push and an ample opportunity to explore things like poetry, uh, short stories, plays. Uh, and that was my introduction to actually having things published in student publications. So I continued that up through college. Um, with the idea that one day I would write a book. But uh, I didn't like school. I'm a, <laughs> I shouldn't say that I didn't like it. I was an indifferent student. If I liked what I was studying, like English and history, I did very well. And if I didn't like it, like math and science, I paid no attention at all. Right. <laughs> so after five years of treading water there and still three credits shy of an English degree, I uh, came out to the police... Uh, NYPD in 1986, and my writing, um, for the most part, got converted to report writing, which, believe it or not, is more creative than most people realize, yep. particularly the way that I did it. I, used to, I drove my bosses nuts in the uh, detective bureau because I learned early on in my detective career that if I don't adequately document my investigation, when it goes to trial two years later, I'm not going to remember it. So I started writing narrative stories to myself with things like metaphor and similes and drove the bosses nuts. My first sergeant in the detect in, uh, in the A3 squad, uh, Gary Leone, said, why do I need a dictionary and a thesaurus to go over your DD5s? I'm like, because you do. Because when I didn't write them like this, I looked like an idiot on the stand and cross-examination. So you're either going to have to up your game or transfer me, because I'm not changing. <laughs> good, good for you. So, it was only after I retired, uh, which was not my choice. Uh, my last knee surgery wouldn't, uh, wouldn't heal. And the surgeon gave me the choice to either go up and file for disability or he was putting me in. And, you know, in any NYPD, you don't want to let them put you in. Because now you're in uniform without a gun and a shield doing steady day tours on uh, at Central Booking for a year. 
before they finally kick you out the door with your disability pension. <coughs> so I had a file, and I, uh, I was fortunate that, uh, that I got a good year under my belt waiting for the, uh, for the uh, pension board to come down and finally put me out. But uh, I was kind of lost at sea. Did this for 24 years, and I really loved my job. Homicide, and there's nothing that beats homicide investigation. Um, so I'm wandering around, and I kept mentioning to my wife, ad, ad nauseum, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book. It was almost a threat at that point. And finally Janet heard enough. She went out, bought me a laptop, threw it at me, and said, just write the damn thing. <laughs> and Shot to Pieces was born two years later. Uh, Mike, what NSU did you do? Neighborhood uh, Stabilization. Yeah, there. started out in NSU 3, uh, which was uh, Midtown. Midtown. Right. Uh, we turned out of Midtown South, uh, covered Midtown North and the 17th. Right. But I was in, uh, in a squad called uh, the Helmethead Squad. We did 6 at night to 2 in the morning uh, on 42nd Street proper. The deuce when the deuce was the deuce. And uh, I liked it. Uh, you know, I thought I had gone out to the police department for I figured I was going to do this for a couple of years and then go back to school. I loved the job. So after NSU 3, then you were transferred, uh, well, I was, to to I was told North. that I couldn't stay in Manhattan no. South. Right. Evidently, they didn't care for my style of policing. Um, so <laughs> one of my training detectives, Sammy Gribben, uh, had it left in the middle of my NSU and gone up to the 3-4 squad. He was an old 3-4 cop. And uh, he convinced me, he goes, listen, come up to Washington Heights. It's where you belong. And it turns out you don't need a contract. To, back then, you didn't need a contract to go to the 3-4. Oh. I was told, basically, oh. you don't need someone. You can use the precinct broom for that one. Right. So uh, I ended up in Washington Heights. Well, and uh, well, I was going to say, back then, the 3-4, I think with the 7-5, led the city in homicides, right? 3-4, 7-5, 4-4. Yeah, we went, we went back and forth every year. And, uh, and really, the difference is maybe one or two homicides. It was, uh, although the 7-5, I'm probably showing my prejudice here, go 3-4. Um, the 7-5 was much bigger, and they also uh, had vast areas that were used as dump jobs for a lot of mob hits. So a lot of their homicides weren't actually homicides from Brooklyn. Gotcha. They were dump jobs. You, you know, you mentioned that for their listening audience, not everybody is a cop. We have people outside the PD that are listening. For purposes of a clarification, can you explain what NSU is so our non-police listeners know what it is? NSU, I mean, they change the name of it uh, well, every I know couple what it is. of years. So explain it. But at the time, it stood for Neighborhood Stabilization Unit. But really what it was was a, was a field training unit for rookies. And... Um, you know, you got your feet wet, but it's, it's also highly supervised. Uh, and it was uh, probably a good introduction mm -hmm. to doing street yeah. police work. And that was right out of the academy. Yeah, right? you get yeah. six months, and then you go to a permanent precinct command. So, so right. it was a training program. And also, you, you, you're giving numbers for the, for the audience. Uh, the, for the audience, you should know that the numbers you give, the 3475, those are precinct numbers. Yeah, the 75 is, uh, covers East New York. By the way, I was the executive officer there for a year, so I know it very well. You know it well. And I grew up in the neighborhood, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, and back to NSU, I did, I did the opposite of what you did. I did NSU 5, 5th Division. Okay. And then I went to Midtown. <laughs> did the opposite. Yeah. It's not usually done that way. Yeah, like I most, know. most people I know. that uh, came out of NSU 3 stayed in uh, one of those three Manhattan South precincts. Yeah. 
Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. Yeah, well, I, well, I was no. thinking about going to the 2-4. It's my grandfather worked, my uncle worked, 2-4 sure, sure. precinct, great command. But um, I was able to get into Midtown North, and that's where I pretty much did most of my career. Yeah, that was always a good squad. That was a good so, uh, th- 30 years ago, um, you had an encounter with a drug dealer in Washington Heights uh, that shook the city to its core, and it helped David Dinkins become... Uh, Help David Deacons, uh, excuse me, not become <laughs> become the former mayor, the ex-mayor, and brought Julie, uh, Rudy Giuliani into the fold, who saved the city. And by the way, I just want to make a point. I spent seven years in narcotics, so I'm very familiar with the operations. Uh, I did five years of undercover work, and the remainder I did street work. So um, the story you're going to tell, I can probably relate very well to. But um, would you tell us about that? Yeah, I was, uh, at the time, I was in uh, the old anti-crime units. They don't exist anymore, uh, which is a shame because they were very effective. But basically, we were in plain clothes and unmarked cars, and we were looking to interdict violent crime. In the 34th Precinct. 34th Precinct, Washington Heights. A lot of guns. Uh, It was a very violent place. Uh, A lot of street shootings, uh, a lot of home invasion robberies. narcotics rich environment it was it's pretty much um was the hub for all the cocaine on the eastern seaboard was filtering through washington heights i think at the time in 1992 when the uh shooting took place uh you could buy a kilo of cocaine on the street for seventeen thousand dollars and you didn't even have to get out of your car you barely had to tap your brakes that's how much cocaine was coming through there at the time. And obviously, with uh, a product being sold illicitly, um, with that kind of money at stake, the potential for violence is great. And Washington Heights lived up to uh, its potential with respect to that. But um, the night in question you were talking about, July 3rd, 1992, um, we're just out rolling around. Um, Spotting corners, seeing what's going on. Uh, there was an expression at the time, uh, corners raised up. It's basically, people, you could see, you could feel the tension from the people on the street. Their heads on a swivel as if something's going on. They're expecting problems. This is a block that an anti-crime cop wants to keep an eye on because there's going to be a shooting. That's where it's going to go Go on. And I happened to notice a uh, guy standing on a corner inappropriately dressed it was like 98 degrees and super humid and this guy's got a black sport jacket on and um the other thing i noticed about him is he was term was raised up um his head is on a swivel he's looking left he's looking right he keeps yanking the lapel of the jacket over the right side of his body at his waistband and you could see a large bulge there wasn't sure what it was, so keeping an eye on it. Um, and I 
we're in traffic on St. Nicholas Avenue heading south when I bring my partner's attention to it. I'm like, listen, drop me off here. I want to keep an eye on him. Circle the block. Let's see what he does. The idea, the unmarked cars were, uh, they really weren't unmarked anymore. I mean, when you spend eight hours a night jumping out at them and lock up bad guys with guns, the bad guys know the car. Yeah. So we were at this point using it to flush criminals in the direction we wanted them to go. So my partners were going to circle the block and come up 162nd Street, and I was going to be standing on the corner, and hopefully the guy would walk right into me, and the three of us would rendezvous, put him on the wall, take the gun out of his waist. And by this time, I had seen a large black revolver sticking out of his waist. So I'm waiting. I'm keeping an eye on him. At the time, I looked nothing like a cop. I had a beautiful head of rock star hair. <laughs> Six earrings, goatee, and I dressed down. Uh, and then the other key, and I had to learn this as a young plainclothes cop. It really doesn't matter what you look like. It's don't make direct eye contact. Because the only guys out on the corner that are making direct eye contact with anyone are the police. So that's the easiest way not to get made. So I did that. And then I heard the alarm come up when they turned on the block from Broadway. Bajando, agua. Policia. Except the guy doesn't walk in my direction. He walks the other way. I'm like, ugh. So now I follow him, and I catch up to him just as he's going into the doorway of an apartment building. Big, heavy metal door. And I grab him, and I pulled my shield out from around my neck. And I, in Spanish, uh, I said, Policia, no se mueve. And he gave me a forearm shiver in the throat like none I had ever experienced. But I held on. And as he backed into the hallway, the fight was on. He, uh, we basically went rolling and cascading in from that first little alcove into a second alcove and then into a greater hallway that was this marble line, 50 feet long, 30 feet wide. It looked more like a mausoleum than anything else, which was fitting because first time that I looked down a barrel of his gun when he pulled it out of his waist and pointed at me, I thought I was going to die in there. But uh, the fight was on. I managed to get my radio out, and I'm putting over 1013's officer in distress calls, which, as you know, Kevin and, 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 and Captain... Cops are proud. They don't put 1013 over the air easy. Right. We used to call them 1085s, but proud 13s. <laughs> I just flat out put out a 13 because right. I'm in a fight of my life, for my life. Uh, about two minutes in, though, and I keep putting over a location. I don't know where I am. I don't know the address. So I'm putting over in the building on the corner, and I'm putting over Amsterdam and 162nd Street. That's two blocks away. <laughs> So nobody knows where to look for me. I'm not supposed to be in a building. At one point, the radio gets knocked out of my hand, and we continue to fight. We're on the ground. We're up again. Uh, and I know from the 911 call, uh, it was five minutes in, um, of hand-to-hand -hand combat. And if you've ever been in a fight, five minutes is an eternity. Uh, you're exhausted. I'm bleeding out of my head. Uh, out of my, my nose got crushed. This guy was big. Uh, the best way I could describe him, um, I remember the first time I saw Gary Sanchez playing for the Yankees, and I saw him come up 
to bat. I'm like, holy shit. I thought I was seeing a ghost. That's how big this guy was. Uh, and for the most part, he kicked my ass. It's, I, I wasn't winning a fight. <laughs> but at one point, he breaks up from the ground, and he heads toward the back stairwell. And I catch up to him and grab him by that shitty jacket he's wearing. And I yank on him and spin him, and the gun comes up, and I'm looking right at it, right down the barrel. And I grabbed his wrist and thrust it away. So now we're face to face in the back of that hallway. The problem is he's bloody, he's sweaty, he's strong, and I feel my grip. I'm losing my grip on his hand, on his gun hand. And as I lost the grip on it, I turned a little sideways and pulled my service revolver. And at the point where the gun again was pointed in my face, I reached out and fired once. He briefly lurched and spun to the right. And uh, a second after, there's not even a second. I actually demonstrated it. It's the way that I demonstrated it in the grand jury. When the gun started to come back up around his body, I fired a second time. And at that point, he went down to the ground and uh, dropped the gun, clattered on the... Uh, the stone, uh, I guess it was marble. Um, but the two shots was one, one after another was that quick, and it was over. So I went, the first thing I did was went and I grabbed his gun because they used to call it the Brooklyn bounce, but it was as prevalent in Upper Manhattan too. Guns only bounce once, and then they're gone. So I was making sure that gun didn't disappear. So I grabbed it. It was huge. It was a modified 38 handled 357 ammo. This one, the loadout turned out to be uh, 38, but it was a big. It was a big gun. Put that in my waist, and I'm thinking now I'm on remote control. I got to cuff him. He's a suspect. Yeah, I got to cuff him. I was too weak to get his arm out from underneath his body, so I front cuffed him. So now I'm, I still hear the radio in that empty lobby, and it's still pandemonium. My partners are looking for me. Every cop in Manhattan North is looking for me. So I go down and I get the radio, and I put over the same bad location. I'm like, and finally I hear my voice, my partner, uh, Tommy McPartland, scream, I'm like, where the fuck are you? I'm like, I don't know. I had to take the radio out to the front door and look up at the address. And then I put over the location, 505 was 162. So now I go back. I don't know what to do. He's on the ground. He's, he's bleeding. I, I'm a, Evidently, I'm a mess because the first two guys to come in the door, Johnny D'Alessandro and Billy Nolan, Sector Charlie that day, run up to me, and now they're, like, ripping at my clothes. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, where are you shot? Where are you shot? I'm like, no, that's, no, I'm not shot. That's from the head wound. So now people start casting, now the rest of the responding cops start cascading into the hallway and they just snatched me up and took me to the hospital. And pretty much, much of the rest of the day was a blur. But, it, you know, he ended up expiring from the two wounds. And uh, by the end of that night, I remember the detective that originally caught the case, Huey Drain, good old old timer up in the 3-4 squad. I check in with him before I'm going to go home. At 6 in the morning. I'm like, is there anything else you need from me, Huey? He goes, no, kid, I got everything. This is a bunk. Go home and get some sleep. 
So I went home and I got some sleep. My wife, uh, at the time my fiance, comes over. We're supposed to go to a barbecue out in Seaford that day. <coughs> but I need to sleep. She's like, all right, I'm going to go shop. And you need anything? I'm like, yeah, you know what I need? I need like a, a hooded T-shirt, long sleeve T-shirt for anti-crime work. It's getting hot. And I can't be out there with a whole hoodie. I need a light, lighter garment. Little did I know I was never going to need an anti-crime outfit ever again. <laughs> but later that night, I'm at, uh, I'm at this party in Seaford. And my wife at the time, she was working in the 13th, and they had a detail called SB10. They basically did, took reports of crimes and events in the past. And they were the first NYPD cops on the job who were issued radios. They were those great gray brick-looking things, Motorola's, I guess. But it was yours. You had to take care of it. You had to take it with you, off-duty, on-duty, whatever. So she happened to have that phone in her purse. And it's going off. And it's her partner, Pete West, God rest his soul. And he says to her, why uh, am I on a rooftop in Washington Heights getting shot at for a riot your boyfriend started? And that was my first acknowledgement for the first time it occurred to me that that bunt that Huey Drain was talking about had hit a seam in the carpet and gone into left field. It, <laughs> so <laughs> I end up calling the 3-4 squad, and I get, uh, God rest his soul, Jerry Giorgio on the phone. Sure. He's like, listen, just sit tight. This thing's going to blow over. Everything is everything. It doesn't change the facts of what went down. Just relax. We'll call you if we need you. So I wasn't in much of a moved to party at that point, so we went home. And uh, by the next day, Washington Heights was fully in flame. And by the day after, I'm being called a murderer by the mayor of New York. Interesting place to be. <laughs> I'm being vilified on every channel on TV, in every single ed print edition of every newspaper. And it turns out it goes outside of even New York. I get a phone call from a friend. Larry Davis was a detective in the 3-4 squad. He was on vacation in Rome. And he calls me and says, I'm in my hotel room in Rome. I don't know what they're saying because I don't speak Italian. He says, but you're on TV in yeah. CNN Rome. I'm like, wow, I'm in deep shit. Yeah. No. <laughs> For better part of two months, I was public enemy number one in New York. I got... Uh, David Dinkins ran a, a circus a couple of days later. He had Ruth Messenger and uh, the local congressman who, uh, Linares was his name. At the time, uh, he was getting taken advantage of. He was newly elected. Uh, so he fell right into, into Dinkins' script. Uh, and pretty much they're calling me, they're asking for calm because they're, in so many words, that telling everyone who's listening that they're going to railroad the cop. He's going to get it. He's going to get his. So um, you know, there's a pretty austere people. Um, I figure if they want to build a frame, they're going to build a sturdy one. So I'm already in my head. I'm thinking about, man, 25 years is a lot of time. <laughs> um, and then the last speaker uh, at that rally was uh, my cardinal, Cardinal O'Connor who um, calls for calm, um, doesn't say a word of defense about me, which is interesting because 
I'm a good Catholic boy. I was an altar boy for that matter. He's my cardinal. He's the prince of my church. And he has thrown me to the wolves in place of someone who, at this point, we have already found out. He's wanted for two warrants. He's the prime suspect in two homicides. And they're already talking to confidential informants that say this guy always, never went anywhere without a gun. <laughs> but Cardinal O'Connor decides that he's going to, he puts it out there, I'm going to use all of the power and prestige of my position to ensure that there isn't a cover-up. A cover-up? Who the fuck said anything about a cover-up? Right. I'm a lower-class kid from Queens. Nobody's covering shit up for me. But because he let Pandora out of the box, she ain't going back in again. So the New York Times jumped all over that and pretty much predicted that uh, even though I'm very, very guilty, that you know law enforcement being what it is, as corrupt as it is, you know, they're going to cover it up on my behalf, which, as you all know, is ludicrous. Nobody's covering anything up for a uniformed cop. But and that's where it stood for a while until uh, the first inkling that I got that maybe I didn't have to do 25 years in prison was when I went down to be interviewed by the district attorney. And um, I don't know if he wants me to use his name, so I won't, but the district attorney involved was a very well-respected guy, even by the cops. He had handled the Anthony uh, Dwyer homicide. In 1988, before that, and I know the cops from Midtown loved him. Um, so that was a good sign that he was the DA in the first place. Um, but then the other aspect of it was is the line of questioning. All of a sudden, everything he's going into, he's trying to build, and I, and it would later come out in the questioning in the grand jury. He's trying to build me as a human being. He wants to know about the churches I attend. He, uh, sports uh, that I played, that I coached, uh, organizations and charities that I've done work for. I'm like, all right, well, you know, you wouldn't want to know about this if it wasn't going to come out later. You know, if they're, you know, they're looking to ride me out on a rail, these questions aren't going to be asked. And uh, just the nature of the questioning with respect to the event, um, I realized the mayor still wants my head on a stick, but... Uh, Robert Morgenthau is elected, and maybe he doesn't. So maybe I'm going to get a fair shake here. And ultimately, that's the way that it turned out. Robert Morgenthau himself referred to the investigation into my shooting as the largest, most thorough shooting investigation in the history of the New York County District Attorney's Office, which is that's quite an investigation. Sure because he did his job. And, and, and he, uh, op you know, obeyed his oaths to do the right thing, to do the fair thing. The truth was able to come out, and ultimately I ended up being exonerated. Right. Mike, as I recall, the funeral was paid for, right? Thanks. Yeah, that's, that was the other thing that really yeah, bothered me. Um, the city of New York. The city actually, paid yeah. for it. A guy who wasn't a citizen was actually an illegal alien. Can I use that term, illegal sure, alien? Why sure, why not? He was an illegal <laughs> alien, um, had never paid a dime of taxes, and uh, only sold drugs and hurt people. Um, but he got a, what I refer to as a royal funeral, mm -hmm. sending him back to the Dominican Republic to be buried like a king. That was on the orders of Dinkins, right? It was all on Dinkins. It was all him. And he, uh, when um, 
the grand jury came back, um, I think it was early September. Um, but I got the heads up from the investigator in the, uh, in the DA's office. Jury came back. It was unanimous. No true bill. It's justified shooting. We're just, we're going to give the police department and the city some time uh, to make preparations before this thing gets announced. I'm like, all right. However, <laughs> I didn't believe him because until it's announced in public and I actually get a look <clears throat> at that no true bill, I'm still convinced I'm going to be indicted for murder. So that, that was a tough two weeks. But the investigator um, they sent over to see Dinkins pretty much sat down with him for two hours and explained to him the impossibility of my guilt. And the man's reaction was, this is an outrage. The city won't stand for it. You get back in there and you hurt this cop. Those were his words. So when the investigator got back to me and says, listen, you don't have a friend there. Uh, he's going to try and do something politically to get back at you for this because he's not, he's not happy with the results. I'm like, well, I didn't think so. I mean, he was calling for my head on a stick when I knew I was innocent. So I'm ready for whatever comes down the pike. I wish that had been true. Um, I didn't realize how dirty um, New York politics were because the man walked a civil rights investigation across St. Andrews Plaza to the U.S. Attorney's Office. And subsequently, my entire anti-crime team were under investigation for the better part of three years for alleged civil rights violations because we made too many gun arrests. Their theory being nobody could be that good. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. So. You, you know, you gave... Uh, on, on to another, more, another topic. <clears throat> you gave us... Um, uh, your background is how you got interested in writing. And in your book, you mentioned uh, Patty uh, Durr. How did you come up with that name? Now, Patty Durr, um, well, where'd you get the idea for him? Well, the idea, it's me, basically. Um, but Patty Durr is actually my birth name. I was adopted. And I didn't think anybody knew. Uh, so uh, I said, well... I don't know. Why pretend? I'm going to name him Patty Dar. I just want to go back to one thing. Captain, where were you during the riots in 93? I was, unfortunately, I was working out of police headquarters. I didn't have a chance to get there. I was a captain in charge of some staff unit that Ray Kelly put me in. Very boring job. Oh, well, <laughs> I'll tell you why I was. I was an anti-crime midtown north at the time. We did a 6-2, to two and they sent us all up to the riots. Mm -hmm. 2 o'clock in the morning. My partner, Joe Smith, and I, Joe's retired sergeant now, we get up there and they put us on a rooftop, pretty much what you mentioned earlier. Yeah. A lot of guys were up on rooftops. Uh, my partner and I were on a rooftop. And it was, you know, it's very warm, very hot. It's a summer night. It was in, you know, uh, July, late July, I believe, or early August. Um, no, it was July, July 3rd. July. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And we're up on a rooftop and it's very hot. Now the sun's coming up. Now it's, you know, 5, 6 in the morning, the sun's coming up. It was like, you know, one of these... Uh, one of these, um, one of these uh, military movies. We're on the top of a roof, we're on a rooftop, taking our shirts off. We got our gun belts on, but we got our shirts off and, you know, using this tan lotion because it was a hot, sunny day. And we were up there for 15, 16 hours. It was unbelievable. You know, I felt like we were in a movie with uh, Vietnam. But, um, but of course, they were burning the cars and riding and, and throwing rocks and bottles and everything else. Um, but, yeah, I remember it well. And uh, 
One thing, Mike, we did make a lot of overtime on it, so thank you for that anyway. Well, <laughs> I think my wife and I were the only two cops in the city that didn't make any overtime on it. I made no. nine hours the day of the shooting and nothing for seven months. They buried me in the borough in Manhattan North. Which is a shame because it was a good shooting. And, you know, it's too bad we were burying him. But mm. guess what? We didn't have to bury a cop, thank well, God. Well, I, uh, I was supposed to be getting uh, awarded at, at Medal Day the following spring. But Dinkins was still the mayor. And uh, they, sh they shit-canned the paperwork. Never came up. And I found out from Joe Esposito that, because uh, he was on the honor board, he's like, your shooting never came up. Are you sure you filed it? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm sure. It was written up for me by a, a supervisor. I said, I, and I hand-delivered it through the channels. It should have come up to the honor board. He goes, well, somebody should have canned it. I had to resubmit it and hand it uh, basically to him directly, and he made sure that it went where it was supposed to be. And the following medal day, I was awarded the combat cross for the shooting. It's second, second highest uh, decoration for valor in the NYPD. And who pinned it on you? Uh, put it around my neck, David. Uh, supposed to be the mayor. Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani, the commissioner at the time, was Bill Bratton. Yeah, but the mayor and, normally uh, pins them, gives you the, the, the uh, awards. Well, he did. It was Rudy, because right. Rudy was mayor by that time, by the time I got the, uh, the medal. But, um, but I hadn't gotten my detective shield yet, because they held it up, because of the federal investigation. So I got punished for another two years for that. Now, what do you like better, fighting crime, or, uh, as some writers uh, put it, bleeding words onto an empty page? That's, that's a good way to put it, bleeding words onto an empty page. Uh, it's more like childbirth, though. Because it is that agonizing. At least my wife tells me. Um, I missed the job. I would, I would go back. I would cut three toes off to catch another homicide. Um, but having said that, to the point now, if I don't write every day, it's like a sick compulsion now. I need to write. So I am constantly expressing myself in the written word. Right. Now I just not to need to get an agent and get these things out in print. Now you said that you would love to come back on a job if you could. Would you want to come back today, the way things are now? I mean, it's an unrealistic response on my part because, I mean, the obvious answer should be, if I'm thinking about it, no. I mean, the other aspect is I'm 60 years old. I don't belong on the job. I'm a broke down, I'm a broke down valise at this point. Uh, but, yeah, I really would love to be a homicide detective again. Even though things are not too good for police work these days. Well, you know, things weren't too good for police work back in 1992 either, and I weathered That's that true. storm, didn't I? That's true. That's true. You know, Mike, with everything going on today in New York with crime being up, uh, NYPD is down in uh, manpower as well as throughout the nation, actually, uh, with law enforcement. Um, you know, what do you think it'll take to bring back New York? Oh. <sighs> It would have to come full circle. Um, unfortunately, the elected government in New York um, is, I mean, they're just making it worse and harder on cops, these laws that they're, uh, that they're passing up in Albany. Uh, the whole thorax compression law. How do you fight someone in the handcuffs without applying pressure to their chest? It's a physical impossibility. But 
I mean, these cop, these cops aren't permitted to touch anyone. The simple fact of the matter is law enforcement. It's enforcement. The word force is in there for a reason. If you were violent and you were breaking the law and you were endangering someone's life, the police not only are supposed to be allowed to take action right. and remove that yeah. threat. Use necessary force. It's their duty. We swear that we're going to do that. It's necessary. It doesn't seem like they're allowed to do that until the laws change, until the prosecutors change. I mean, you can't, you can't get anybody uh, prosecuted for, for no. crime in this city under, under the elected prosecutors. Can you imagine what it would have been like if Alvin Bragg was the DA when this happened with you back then? Oh, yeah, I'd be on life parole. <laughs> I know exactly what would have happened. Yeah. I went from necessary force to no force at all, really, what it's yeah. coming down to. Don't touch. Right, right, true. How can people contact you? Uh, easiest way to contact me probably is through my website. I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can just put my name in and it should pop up. Uh, I'll be the handsome guy in a sport jacket. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, but the easiest way, if, if you're interested, you want to read my books, uh, my website, michaelokeefeauthor.com. I have a link, a direct link to uh, my Amazon page. And the books are all there. If you read electronically, you're in luck because I'm practically giving those away. If you read on Kindle or uh, whatever the uh, other electronic readers are. Uh, the first three things, you'll know you have my webpage because the first three things that come up are three 40-second trailers, theatrical trailers for the uh, three Patty Dar novels. And they're entertaining in their own right. They're worth a look. Uh, I really enjoyed producing those. But... Uh, you know, that's, I'm accessible. Uh, my books are available pretty much everywhere books are sold. Unfortunately, uh, because I'm an independent author of Barnes & Noble, I don't have a publishing house pushing me. You might have to order the book <laughs> at Barnes & Noble. But that's, it's available. That's fine. That's fine. Cap, uh, yeah, good? Yeah, I guess that's about it for us. So, Mike, I'd like to thank... Uh, guest today, retired detective, first grade Michael O'Keefe. Mike, I just want to let you know you did a great job back in 1993. Thank you. With that said, if um, you like what you hear, please subscribe to Cop Talk and also you can follow us on Twitter at Cop Talk WABC. That's at Cop Talk WABC. Until next time, stay safe and God bless the NYPD and God bless America. <laughs>